Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, May 19th, 2018. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. The following is a presentation of a speech, or part of a speech, by William Jennings Bryan, which was published in the Barnes Review in their March-April 2000 issue. We are presenting this here this evening, as well as an earlier and longer article focusing on Brian's political career, which was written by Michael Collins Piper in 1996, in order to show that there was viable political opposition to the internationalist designs which ultimately prevailed in the late 19th and early 20th century American politics. However, we see William Jennings Bryan as the last of such viable political opposition, and he was defeated time and again until he finally relent relented and later regretted it. Of course, other men such as Huey Long came along a little later in history. However, they were just assassinated. There wasn't no messing around once the Jews got full control of the American economy. This is Imperialism is Not the American Way by William Jennings Bryan. That's how the Barnes Review editors titled it. It's really just a small portion of his speech and we will have a link to the entire speech online. It's quite lengthy. The editor of the Barnes Review introduces the speech with the description of a cartoon which was reproduced on the issue's front cover. We have that cartoon on our program announcement for this podcast. The caption that they supplied says, at the dawn of the 20th century, when the old horse got too slow for Uncle Sam, as the Judge cartoon, which is our cover illustration this month, so quaintly put it, one of the most vociferous critics of the newly burgeoning U.S. internationalism, soon to be called gunboat diplomacy, was populist figure William Jennings Bryan, known as the Great Commoner. And the cartoon, which we will picture here, may have been better described. According to Wikipedia, Judge was a weekly satirical magazine published in the United States from 1881 to 1947. Reportedly, the magazine openly supported the Republican Party. However, the many Victor Gillum cartoons which it published expressed sentiments which were against immigration, internationalism, and imperialism, things that the Republican Party had supported. William Jennings Bryan was an anti-imperialist and populist Democrat. In our last presentation 
of these protocols of Satan. Presenting the menace of the money power, we saw A.K. Chesterton describe the Jewish banker's promotion of the gold standard and how the Sherman Silver Act of the 1890s and the issue of silver certificates stood in the way of their plans. This examination of William Jennings Bryan by Piper will also help us to understand these issues and how they were debated at the time. Now our editor prefaces the Bryan speech against imperialism with a description of Bryan himself. A former member of Congress from Nebraska, Bryan was the Democratic Party's presidential candidate in 1896, 1900, and 1908, and although he achieved a national following and was practically a legend in his own time, he never occupied the Oval Office. Appointed Secretary of State by Woodrow Wilson in 1912, Bryan resigned that post in disgust when it became clear that the Wilson administration, dominated by international money interests, was determined to bring the United States into the war then raging in Europe. The big national issue during Bryan's 1896 presidential campaign against Republican William McKinley was the issue of money. However, four years later, when McKinley sought re-election, once again facing Bryan as his challenger, the big national issue had turned to imperialism. What follows is an abbreviated excerpt from Bryan's speech on the subject of imperialism that he delivered during the heat of the 1900 campaign. In fact, Bryan's point of view on the subject hardly differs from the modern-day populist viewpoint on globalism and, in many respects, echoes many of the points that Pat Buchanan is making today in his own bid for the presidency. Now, this was March of 2000 when this was written, and the presidential elections were months away. Buchanan, a former advisor to Republican Presidents Ford and Reagan, left the party in 1999 and ran as a populist on the Reform Party ticket, a place previously occupied by Ross Perot. He managed to get only 0.4% of the electorate. Not quite 450,000 votes. This is embarrassing since, in contrast, Perot received nearly 20 million votes in 1992, and then in 1996, after he was excluded from televised debates, he still received over 8 million votes. But if anything, killed Buchanan's credibility back in 2000. It was his choice of a negress, a she-boon, for his vice presidential running mate. Included in this article, the Barnes Review provided a 1908 photograph of Bryan accepting the presidential the Democratic presidential nomination. The caption read, William Jennings Bryan, the great commoner, lived from 1860 to 1925. 
His fierce denunciations of American empire building at the turn of the 20th century would prove to be still as valid, inspiring, and cutting today as they were then. Some of his views on American imperialism remain the standard for constitutionalists and non-interventionists today. In 1912, he helped Woodrow Wilson become president and was rewarded with the office of Secretary of State. But he quit that position when he broke with Wilson over U.S. policy following the sinking of the Lusitania. In this photograph, he accepts his third Democratic nomination for the presidency on the steps of the Nebraska Capitol in 1908. Actually, as Michael Collins Piper will allude later on, Bryan's function as Secretary of State was being undermined by the so-called Colonel Edward Mandel House. We discussed House at length in Part 19 of this series of the Protocols, which was subtitled, Jewish Agents in Post-Protocols American Government. House was definitely a Jew. Now we will present the amended text of Brian's speech, which is actually just a few paragraphs that the Barnes Review editors had extracted from a lengthy speech which Brian had presented to a committee of the national leadership of the Democratic Party on August 8th of 1900. Those who would have this nation, the words of William Jennings Bryan. Those who would have this nation enter upon a career of empire must consider not only the effect of imperialism on the Filipinos, but they must also calculate its effects upon our own nation. We cannot repudiate the principle of self-government in the Philippines without weakening that principle here. Lincoln said, that the safety of this nation was not in its fleets, its armies, or its forts, but in the spirit which prizes liberty in the heritage of all men, in all lands, everywhere. And he warned his countrymen that they could not destroy the spirit without planting the seeds of despotism at their own doors. And I will comment on that shortly. Even now we are beginning to see the paralyzing influence of imperialism, Heretofore, this nation has been prompt to express its sympathy with those who were fighting for civil liberty. While our sphere of activity has been limited to the Western Hemisphere, our sympathies have not been bounded by the seas. We have felt it due to ourselves and to the world, as well as to those who were struggling for the right to govern themselves, to proclaim the interests which our people have, from the date of their own independence felt in every context between human rights and arbitrary power. And of course Lincoln himself was one such tyrant who denied the people of the South the right to govern themselves by force of arms. We do not know whether Bryan understood the hypocrisy of quoting Lincoln in this context. However, Bryan himself was merely a politician, and perhaps he was trying to exploit the fact 
that Lincoln was a Republican, which is a possibility, because the Republicans were the pro-imperialism party of the time. As for the Philippines, and they still are actually, as for the Philippines, it matters not whether Brian cared for aliens. What matters is that he is asserting that the United States should treat foreign nations in the same way that its own founding documents declared the right of a people to self-government. In a portion of this speech, which was not reproduced by the editors, we read, If it is right for the United States to hold the Philippine Islands permanently and imitate European empires in the government of colonies, the Republican Party ought to state its position and defend it. But it must expect the subject races to protest against such a policy and to resist to the extent of their ability. The Philippines were one from Spain just a few years before this, in the so-called Spanish-American War, and they were ultimately granted independence, but not until 1946. Ever since then, Filipinos have been colonizing America, or at least ever since the Immigration Act in the 1960s. Interestingly, in 1899, Rudyard Kipling, 1899 is just a year before this speech was given, Rudyard Kipling wrote his famous poem, The White Man's Burden, The United States and the Philippine Islands, which was evidently meant to encourage the United States' civilizing of the Philippines. And Judge Magazine published another Victor Gillum cartoon, borrowing from Kipling's title, The White Man's Burden, Apologies to Rudyard Kipling. The cartoon pictures both Uncle Sam and John Bull climbing a hill to civilization. For those of our American listeners who aren't familiar with John Bull, John Bull is a cartoon character that represents... England, the same way that Uncle Sam is a cartoon character that represents or personifies the United States. So this cartoon pictures both Uncle Sam and John Bull climbing a hill to civilization, which is at the top of the hill. On John Bull's back is a basket full of Asians while Uncle Sam toils under a basket full of Negroes. The boulders which serve as obstacles to their ascent are marked with words such as brutality, superstition, ignorance, vice, cannibalism, etc. All of the traits of the non-white races by which they themselves have never been able to overcome. By which they by themselves, have never been able to overcome. Of course, the prevailing egalitarianism prevented men of the time from realizing that these other races could never overcome such challenges, regardless of how far they were carried by white men. Generally, we have still not learned that lesson today. 
we are still foolishly egalitarian. Continuing with Brian's speech, three quarters of a century ago, when our nation was small, the struggles of Greece aroused our people, and Webster and Clay gave eloquent expression to the universal desire for Grecian independence. In 1898, all parties manifested a lively interest in the success of the Cubans the Cubans to gain their independence from Spain, of course. The reference to Greece is to the so-called Greek War of Independence of the 1820s. For over 500 years, much of Greece, and most of the rest of the former Byzantine Empire, was under Ottoman rule. Independence was officially gained in 1830, after intervention by the British, French, and Russians on the side of the Greeks. The reference to Cuba is in relation to the Spanish-American War, after which Cuba gained independence from the United States in 1902. Continuing with Brian. But now, when a war is in progress in South Africa, which must result in an extension of the monarchical idea or in the triumph of a republic, if the South Africans could have possibly won. The advocates of imperialism in this country dare not say a word in behalf of the Boers, the hypocrisy of the liberal Jewish press has always been quite stark and it's always confounded us that most people don't even see it. Brian continues Our opponents, conscious of the weakness of their cause, seek to confuse imperialism with expansion, and have even dared to claim Jefferson as a supporter of their policy. But Jefferson spoke so freely and used language with such precision that no one can be ignorant of his views. On one occasion he declared, If there be one principle more deeply rooted than any other in the mind of every American, it is that we should have nothing to do with conquest. And again he said, conquest is not in our principles. It is inconsistent with our government. Imperialism would be profitable to the army contractors. It would be profitable to the ship owners who would carry live soldiers to the Philippines and bring dead soldiers back. It would be profitable to those who would seize upon the franchises. And it would be profitable to the officials, whose salaries would be fixed here and paid over there. But to the farmer, to the laboring man, and to the vast majority of those engaged in other occupations, it would bring expenditure without return and risk without reward. If there is poison in the blood of the hand, it will ultimately reach the heart. It is equally true that forcible Christianity, if planted under the American flag in the faraway Orient, will sooner or later be transplanted upon American soil. Imperialism finds no warrant in the Bible. The command, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, has no Gatling gun attachment. Evidently, 
there were people using religion as a reason to rule over aliens in foreign lands. This is only a brief snapshot of the political issue of the day in the year 1900, but not even Bryan may have seen a larger picture. An anti-imperialist America is anathema to the internationalist Jew who would not have been able to move the center of his empire from London to New York and who would not have had the world's largest plantation of white blood to freely harvest for his use in his wars of world conquest. But imperialism was introduced by two methods, and evidently Bryan did understand that. One method is commercial, and the other religious. It was as early as the 15th century that imperialist forces within the Roman Catholic Church began to abuse certain scriptures as an excuse by which to force church rule over alien peoples. So here we see that this idea that the heathen should be forced to accept Christianity was also circulating in 19th century America even though it was dominated by Protestants. Identity Christians should already understand that first the word world as it is used in the Bible is misunderstood. The second thing identity Christians should already understand is that the Christian gospel was to only be brought to certain nations. As it is explained by the apostles of Christ, it should only be brought to the twelve tribes which were scattered throughout Mesopotamia and Europe. Finally, the passage quoted here by Brian is from Mark chapter 16, and the spurious portion of the Gospel of Mark which was added sometime after the fourth century of the Christian era. The imperialist Christianity, I'm sorry, the imperialist Christianity which developed in Rome is a Jewish corruption so that Christianity could ultimately be subverted for their purposes. In our last presentation of these Protocols of Satan, we witnessed the assertions of A.K. Chesterton that the international bankers needed to have the nations of the world on a common currency standard for which they chose gold before they could subsume those nations into their supranational central banking system. It would be our contention that once it was ascertained that America submitted to a gold standard, that in turn paved the way for a central bank, as Chesterton explained, and that in turn would pave the way for the use of America as a military tool in the overseas ventures of that same cabal of Jewish bankers as a digression beyond the scope of our purpose here. In the 1960s, the gold standard was made obsolete by the world banking system, which was by 
than thoroughly entrenched. But for now, in order to substantiate the steps taken in the culmination of this process, we feel that there is no better witness than the political career of William Jennings Bryan, who was the most prominent of the opposition of his time to each of those steps as they were being implemented. Running for president in 1896, Bryan was the anti-gold and pro-silver candidate. Running for president in 1900, he was the opponent of imperialism. But we must also warn that while William Jennings Bryan was a Christian, he is not an ideal Christian identity icon. While he made many speeches promoting Christianity and the importance of Christian morals, and while he was a vocal opponent of Darwinism and other modernist contrivances, he was nevertheless a liberal egalitarian, and his views on governance reflected his liberalism. He thought, for example, that America should be engaged in using her power to spread democracy to alien nations abroad. So he may not have been an imperialist of government, but he was a universalist egalitarian and an imperialist of ideas, just another politician trapped in the philosophical box designed by medieval Jews. Now we shall present an article from the November 1996 issue of the Barnes Review, William Jennings Bryan, The Populist Warrior, by Michael Collins Piper. And while we would agree on many things, I would consider Piper an intellectual opponent and before he died, I challenged him on Facebook to discuss certain things with me, especially Christianity. Instead of discussion, I was trolled by his friend, the Arab bastard and blogger Mark Glenn, and several others operating sock puppet accounts. Piper died unexpectedly, unexpectedly in 2015. In spite of his faults, he did some very good work in certain areas of history, and I think that this is one of those areas. The introduction to our article reads, In 1896, the forces of American populism rallied behind Democratic presidential candidate William Jennings Bryan. For the first time, our political arena filled with the filled with the drama of middle America's champions squaring off against the international plutocratic interests. Controversy over the nation's money system was the core issue of the day. Americans from all walks of life freely debated the question of our monetary structure. Today the subject is virtually taboo. What a difference a century makes. And of course today people are not even cognizant that they should question the money structure. They don't even know where money comes from. But the reasons for that have already been boasted of in the protocols. Piper begins, In 1896, 
The Democratic Party held its national convention in Chicago, nominating William Jennings Bryan for the presidency. A hundred years later, Democrats again gathered in Chicago to renominate President Bill Clinton. This year, the Democratic Party's national convention was a tightly orchestrated love fest. In 1896, the party was split down the middle. Congressional Quarterly's 1976 Guide to U.S. Elections stated, The Democratic Convention that assembled in Chicago in July 1896 was dominated by one issue, currency. A delegate's viewpoint on this single issue influenced his position on every vote taken. Generally, the party was split along regional lines with Eastern delegations favoring a hard-money policy with maintenance of the gold standard, and most Southern and Western delegations supporting a soft-money policy with the unlimited coinage of silver. Now here is a photograph captioned, William Jennings Bryan is pictured in 1896, about the time he received his first presidential nomination. In the midterm 1894 elections, People's Party or Populist Party candidates received a surprising vote of over 1.4 million. Their largely rural strength was essentially based on the championing of free silver. Bryan won most of their 1896 support. There were, of course, silver Republicans and gold Democrats who reflected their agrarian or industrial area interests, the backing of urban working men and Union Army veterans proved decisive for William McKinley. In virtually every respect, the Democrats of 1896 are nothing like the Democrats who nominated William Jennings Bryan. I'm sorry, the Democrats of 1996 are nothing like the Democrats who nominated William Jennings Bryan in 1896, although they certainly wanted to recall Bryan's populist appeal. Since U.S. Grant, Ulysses S. Grant's, successful Republican bid for the presidency in 1868, entire state GOP delegations from the South were totally or largely composed of blacks. Here is another photograph captioned, Bryan's third and last hurrah as a presidential nominee was in 1908. Here he campaigns against outgoing President Theodore Roosevelt's chosen successor, William Howard Taft. No burning issues separated the major party candidates. Both opposed monopolistic trusts, and supported a graduated income tax. Minor party candidates included populist Thomas E. Watts, socialist Eugene Debs, and, ominously, prohibitionist Eugene Chiffon. Of course, Taft won the 1908 election. But in spite of being Roosevelt's hand-picked successor, in 1912 Roosevelt would enter the race as a third-party candidate who finished second and split his party's vote with Taft to ensure the victory of Democrat Woodrow Wilson, Taft finishing third, of course.
Continuing with Piper, who had just described the Negro prevalence in the Republican Party in the South, most American Jews of the time and the ever-increasing numbers of Eastern European Jewish immigrants allied with the GOP, favoring its financial policies and rightly perceiving it as the social activist party. The Democrats of that era were were the party of a patriotic and essentially segregationist middle and lower middle America. The massive party identity shifts would not begin to occur until the Franklin Roosevelt administrations. As columnist Robert Novak commented, and here Piper's going off track, I believe, but he gets back on it in a bit. He keeps comparing this 1896 election to the state of Democrats in 1996, I guess to show us how sad the state of politics is today in contrast to how engaged over the issues Americans were in 1896. So he says, as columnist Robert Novak commented, in the weekend festivities preceding the convention, meaning the 1996 Democratic Convention, I'm sorry, the 1896 Democratic Convention. I guess Novak is making the same comparison that Piper has basically copied here. In the weekend festivities preceding the convention, there was an actor's recitation in Grant Park in Chicago of William Jennings Bryan's Cross of Gold speech during the platform debate at the 1896 Democratic National Convention. It is hard to imagine a major party nominating anybody who dispensed such claptrap about free silver coinage, agrarian populism, and the struggle by the masses against commercialism. In 1996, Democrats won't even debate their platform, he predicted. And that was Novak writing in the Washington Post in August of 96. Of course, Novak is also a Jew. The free silver concept, it sounds crazy to us today, right? The free silver concept comes from the basic notion that the resources of the land belong collectively to its people, and the people should therefore benefit collectively from the resources. So we have plenty of silver in the ground, the government should mine it or, or have it mined for the people and, and not for the corporations on Wall Street to profit from. Continuing with Piper, Novak was right about this year's gathering, meaning 1996. As he later noted, it was the most peaceful, unified Democratic National Convention in memory. Yet, he pointed out, Democrats had been fighting about platforms throughout their history. In 1996, though, that was hardly the case. Tom Johnson, the populist mayor of Cleveland, called the 1896 election the first great protest of the American people against monopoly, the first great struggle of the masses in our country against the privileged classes. It was not free silver that frightened the plutocratic leaders. 
What they fear then, what they fear now, is free men. An outgoing Democratic incumbent occupied the White House in 1896. President Grover Cleveland was completing his second non-consecutive term, but he was by no means in control of his party. The chief executive from Buffalo, New York, like many in the eastern wing of his party, was a gold Democrat, but since the president was not seeking re-election, the party and its convention were wide open and ripe for a split. According to historians R. Craig Sauter and Edward M. Burke, in the politics of 1896, support for gold was a declaration of allegiance to the eastern banks and the large corporate holdings they financed and the economic prosperity they promised. At this time there was a depression going on. To declare for silver was to side with the southern and western farmers and for working men and women whose standard of living was crushed under a half decade of the worst depression the United States had yet experienced. Silver as a political issue represented a dire cry for relief from insurmountable personal debt. As the 1896 election approached, the silver forces represented constituencies that were on the verge of open economic rebellion and violence. Ironically, Piper says, Cleveland's Republican opponent in the 1888 campaign, James G. Blaine, had endorsed silver. However, by 1896, the Grand Old Party had firmly endorsed gold, taking the same position as the Democratic president. This led to some interesting maneuvering within both parties. And here we see that the phenomenon of Democrats and Republicans sharing the same policy, regardless of its utility to the nation, is nothing new. Piper continues, Three weeks before the Democratic Convention, the Republicans convened in St. Louis and nominated the, the popular 53-year-old Ohio governor, William McKinley, on the first ballot. A Civil War hero who had served in Congress, where he was nationally known as the author of protectionist trade measures. McKinley was actually a bimetallist, an economic tranny, I guess. He advocated joint usage of gold and silver in regulating the nation's economic affairs. However, McKinley and his closet political strategist, Ohio industrialist Marcus A. Hanna, another bimetallist, accepted the GOP's gold plank in order to get the party's endorsement and Hannah was evidently of Scotch-Irish and English descent. They sensed correctly that the endorsement of gold would be a sure way to win the support of the Eastern financial interests. These titans were watching events within the Democratic Party with, it, with great concern. Writing in Tragedy and Hope, Georgetown University professor Carol Quigley described the events leading up to that momentous Democratic Convention of 1896. And now Piper quotes Quigley for three short paragraphs. 
The inability of the investment bankers and their industrial allies to control the Democratic Convention of 1896 was a result of the agrarian discontent of the period of 1868 to 1896. This discontent in turn was based very largely on the monetary tactics of the banking oligarchy. The bankers were wedded to the gold standard. Accordingly, at the end of the Civil War, they persuaded the Grant administration to curb the post-war inflation and go back on the gold standard. This gave the bankers a control of the supply of money. The bankers' affection for low prices was not shared by the farmers. Since each time prices of farm products went down, the burden of farmers' debts, especially mortgages, became greater. Moreover, farm prices, being much more competitive than industrial prices, and not protected by a tariff, fell much faster than industrial prices, and farmers could not reduce costs or modify their production plans nearly as rapidly as industrialists could. The result was a systematic exploitation of the agrarian sectors of the community by the financial and industrial sectors. This exploitation took the form of high industrial prices, high and discriminatory railroad rates, high interest charges, low farm prices, and a very low level of farm services by railroads and the government. And we have already seen from A.K. Chesterton how Jacob Schiff and Kuhn Loeb and Company had already gained control of two major railroads by this time, Union Pacific Railroad and the Great Northern Pacific Railway. They gained control of both of them in the early 1890s. Continuing with Piper, unable to resist by economic weapons, continuing with Piper's quotation from Carol Quigley, I should say, unable to resist by economic weapons, the farmers of the West turned to political relief, but were greatly hampered by their reluctance to vote Democratic because of their memories of the Civil War. Instead, they tried to work on the state political level through local legislation, so-called Granger Laws, and set up third-party movements like the Greenback Party in 1878 or the Populist Party in 1892. <coughs> By 1896, however, agrarian discontent rose so high that it began to overcome the memory of the Democratic role in the Civil War. So we see that the farmers of the West were well indoctrinated by the Union view of history, which unjustly places blame for the war of northern aggression on the South, where Democrats were in the majority politically, at least according to Quigley. Perhaps one day we will be able to examine post-war propaganda from this perspective. Once again, continuing with Piper, the capture of the Democratic Party by these forces of discontent under William Jennings Bryan in 1896, who was determined to obtain higher prices by increasing the supply of money on a bimetallic rather than a gold basis, 
presented the electorate with an election on a social and economic issue for the first time in a generation. That's the end of the Quigley quote. I'm sorry, it was four short paragraphs. The opening functions, Piper says, of the convention signaled that the silver forces were in command of the Democratic Party in 1896. Sauter and Burke wrote, The band played Dixie as the silver candidate, Senator John W. Daniel of Virginia, defeated the National Committee's candidate, New York's David Bennett Hill, for the position of temporary chairman. Daniel's victory was greeted with waves of enthusiastic endorsement among the silver candidates, the silver delegates, I'm sorry, that lasted nearly half an hour. The early victory signaled that a strong silver contingent had had made its way to Chicago from the state conventions. With the final vote on adoption of the party's platform, Plank, on money, tensions ran high. There was even a call for the impeachment of President Cleveland by Senator Pitchfork Ben Tillman of South Carolina. He called the president a tool of Wall Street and angrily denounced Cleveland Republicanism. It was during the platform debate over the money question that it became evident that William Jennings Bryan would win the Democratic Party's presidential nomination. For nearly a generation thereafter, he would be recognized as the leading national voice of the American populist movement. Born in Salem, Illinois, on March 19, 1860, Bryan was graduated from Illinois College in 1881. After studying at the Union College of Law in Chicago, he opened a law office in Jacksonville, Illinois, but his law practice drew him westward and he settled in Nebraska in 1887. Bryan became active in the Democratic Party in his adopted state, delivering his first and well-accepted political speech in 1888. He was only 28 years old at the time. Having married Mary Bird in 18... Mary Baird, B-A-I-R-D, in 1884, Bryan soon discovered he also had an active political helpmate. No shrinking violet, Mrs. Bryan was college-educated and took up the study of law. Eventually, she was admitted to practice by the Supreme Court of Nebraska. She had a little personal interest in the business of law. Mrs. Bryan was interested in helping advance her husband's career and felt knowledge of the law would prove beneficial. And tongue-in-cheek, we may quip that the adoption of aspects of society which seem feminist are permissible if a woman is helping her husband, which is an anti-feminist position. What a, quandri- what a quandary that causes. Already known as a skilled orator, Bryan was elected as a Democrat to the U.S. House of Representatives in 1890 and re-elected in 1892. He ran for the Senate in 1894 but was defeated. However, during his short tenure in Congress, Bryan established himself as an able political strategist and built a national reputation. From 1894 to 1896, 
he retired to the field of journalism. He kept active in the public arena, particularly in regard to the growing controversy over the money question. In 1894, Bryan ran for the Senate in Nebraska as a Democrat against Republican John Thurston. We have already seen it explained how unpopular Democrats were in the West. Bryan received less than 13% of the vote, and a third-party candidate did slightly better. While Nebraska elected Populist Party senators in 1893 and 1899, it did not elect a Democrat as senator until 1911. So running for senator, Bryan didn't have a chance in Nebraska. Continuing with Piper, <clears throat> even though he was a congressman from Nebraska, continuing with Piper, <clears throat> leading a pro-silver delegation from Nebraska to the 1896 Democratic Convention, Bryan was in the right place at the right time. Here there is a photograph which is captioned, In 1914, Secretary of State Bryan became enraged by Britain's early wartime disregard of treaty documents and related interpower agreements. Although technically America could trade with Germany, His Majesty's government added petroleum and some 800 non-military items to its blockade list. In an effort I'm sorry, in an earnest but near-farcical 1915 attempt to achieve peace. He forged the Bryan Peace Treaty. Above, in the photograph, Bryan signs the treaty with representatives of Great Britain, France, Spain, and China. I don't have the details of the treaty. This presentation is long enough without it, believe me. Here there is another photograph captioned Bryan's last crusade, his prosecution of the Scopes monkey trial in Tennessee, which would remain one of his most memorable. This photograph pictures Bryan seated with the defense attorney Clarence Darrow. The nationally followed proceedings had taken a great deal out of the energetic warhorse, meaning Bryan. The jury agreed with Bryan. Defendant John Thomas Scopes was fined $100 and court costs, the legal minimum, so I guess the judge sided with the defendant. However, Bryan died the following Sunday. He had delivered a church oration in Dayton, Tennessee, and in the afternoon succumbed to diabetes mellitus, the immediate cause attributed to the trial's heat and exertions. Piper continues with our article on Brian. Although the pro-silver forces had largely prevailed throughout the convention, by the time of the platform debate the rhetoric was so harsh and so pitched that even the silver forces sensed their position was weakening. They needed forceful action to reclaim the initiative. Sauter and Burke described that critical moment, the historian Sauter and Burke, the silver forces needed to regain control of the controversy. At this moment, a handsome, slim, six-foot, 36-year-old former two-term congressman from Nebraska from the Nebraska Silver Delegation, leaped to the speaker's stand 
two steps at a time. He wore a stylish black alpaca coat, western boots, pants that bagged the knees, and a white string bow tie. Amid the waving state banners and tossed hats, the crowd finally held its breath. As the speaker stood for several minutes motionless, statuesque against the sea of waving handkerchiefs, the delegates and even the spectators sensed that they were about to be lashed by a verbal storm. Brian appeared like a democratic Apollo before them. These are the words of Souter and Berg. His figure chiseled against the portraits of former presidents, his head tossed back, his hand upon the podium. Though a lawyer of the highest quality, Brian did not answer in kind the legalistic arguments of the gold men. Instead, he elevated his political battle for silver to a moral and spiritual plane that would typify the campaigns he fought all his long life. His beautifully melodic voice resonated lute-like in the hearts of his sympathizers. That's the end of the citation from Souter and Berg. Brian then proceeded to deliver one of the most momentous and oft-referenced political orations in all of recorded history. Acknowledging the strife within his party ranks, Brian said, Never before in the history of this country has there been witnessed such a contest as that through which we have just passed. Never before in the history of American politics has a great issue been fought out as this issue has been by the voters of a great party. In this contest, brother has been arrayed against brother, father against son. Old leaders have been cast aside when they have refused to give expression to the sentiments of those whom they, of those whom they would lead, and new leaders have sprung up to give direction to this cause of truth. Thus has the contest been waged, and we have assembled here under as binding and solemn instructions as were ever imposed upon representatives of the people. Turning to the gold delegates, Brian declared, when you, become, when you come before us and tell us that we are about to disturb your business interests, we reply that you have disturbed our business interests by your course. We do not come as aggressors. Our war is not a war of conquest. We are fighting in the defense of our homes, our families, and posterity. We have petitioned, and our petitions have been scorned. We have entreated, and our entreaties have been disregarded. We have begged, and they have mocked when our calamity came. We beg no longer, we entreat no more, we petition no more. We defy them. And we can only say that all of this division was unnecessary except for the plans of the bankers who wanted the country on a gold standard so that they could control it and who manipulated policy in order to attain in order to attain to the gold standard and that's exactly what they did and we learned that to some degree from A.K. Chesterton last week. Responding to critics who said that the Silverites were demagogues, 
Potential Tyrants Brian thundered. In this land of the free, you need not fear a tyrant that will spring up from among the people. What we need is an Andrew Jackson to stand as Jackson stood against the encroachments of organized wealth. And of course, Brian was proven absolutely true by history here. We may say in our platform that we believe that the right to coin and issue money is a function of government. We believe it. We believe that it is a part of sovereignty and no more can no more be with safety delegated to private individuals than we could afford to delegate to private individuals the power to make penal statutes or levy taxes. Those who are opposed to this proposition tell us that the issue of paper money is a function of the bank, and that the government ought to go out of the banking business. I stand with Jefferson rather than with them, and tell them, as he did, that the issue of money is a function of government, and that the banks ought to go out of the governing business. And of course, we see that what we should be able to see with absolute clarity that the banks and Wall Street investment brokerages and other international corporations have certainly been the true source of all of our government policy these last 80 to 100 years. That Brian was absolutely correct. And of course, one of the final acts of his political career was to assist with the passing of the Federal Reserve Act, which Chesterton informed us that Bryan later regretted. So even the politician is burned when he betrays his best principles. Now Piper comments, Bryan emphasized the fact that money was the overriding issue of that particular time, given the fractures that had developed within American society. Until that issue was addressed, no other issue was as important. He continues to quote Brian, If they ask us why we do not embody in our platform all the things that we believe in, we reply that when we have restored the money of the Constitution, all other necessary reforms will be possible. But until this is done, there is no other reform that could be accomplished. And of course, we would agree that as long as the Jews print the money, we have no political solution ever. Brian described, according to the words of Michael Colin Piper, Brian described the conflict over money as a historical and universal struggle, and one that was central to a nation's sovereignty. So, continuing his citation of Brian, no private character, however pure, no personal popularity, however great, can protect from the avenging wrath of an indignant people, a man who will declare that he is in favor of fastening the gold standard upon his country, who is willing to surrender the right of self-government and place the legislative control of our affairs in the hands of foreign potentates and powers. We can tell them that they will search the pages of history in vain to find a single instance where the common people of any land have ever declared themselves in favor of the gold standard. They can find where the holders of fixed investments have declared for a gold standard, but not where the masses have.
Upon which side will the Democratic Party fight? Upon the side of the idle holders of idle capital or upon the side of the struggling masses? And of course the dangers of fixing your economy to a your your currency to a gold standard are indeed foreign dangers because foreigners can easily manipulate your currency by increasing or decreasing the availability of gold from outside the country Interestingly, 30 years later in Mein Kampf, Adolf Hitler would make a very similar distinction in regards to the economy of Germany and the parasitic usurers who controlled capital and the currency in that very same manner. And he put them out of business in that nation in 1933. That's why we had a Second World War. <coughs> Piper continues and he says, At this point in his fiery speech, the great orator had worked the Democratic Convention into a fever pitch. So continuing to quote Brian, You come to us and tell us that the great cities are in favor of the gold standard. We reply that the great cities rest upon our broad and fertile prairies. Burn down your cities and leave our farms, and your cities will spring up again as if by magic. But destroy our farms, and the grass will grow in the streets of every city in the country. Piper says, Brian then laid down the gauntlet to the gold forces and the international financial interests. His words were a populist reaffirmation of the spirit of the Democrat Declaration of Independence. This nation, <coughs> this nation, Brian says, is able to legislate for its own people on every question without waiting for the aid or consent of any other nation on earth. It is the issue of 1776 over again. Our ancestors had the courage to declare their political independence of every other nation. Shall we, their descendants, declare that we are less dependent than our forefathers? No, my friends, that will never be the verdict of our people. Therefore, we care not upon what lines the battle is fought. If they say bimetallism is good, but that we cannot have it until other nations help us, we reply that instead of having a gold standard because England has, we will restore bimetallism and then let England have bimetallism because the United States has it. Brian Piper says, Brian then concluded his address in words. that are among the most memorable ever delivered in a political oration. If they dare to come out in the open field and defend the gold standard as a good thing, we will fight them to the uttermost. Having behind us the producing masses of this nation and the world, supported by the commercial interests, the laboring interests, and the toilers everywhere, we will answer their demand for a gold standard by saying to them, you shall not press down upon the brow of labor this crown of thorns. You shall not crucify mankind upon a cross of gold. And of course that was excerpts from William Jennings Bryan famous cross of gold speech. Bryan then touched his temples and spread his arms wide 
as a man crucified. The force of Brian's last words electrified his audience first into stunned silence. They were probably wondering whether or not he was being impious. Then into an ecstatic rapture that was deafening and chilling. Wrote Soderin Burke, this young man from Nebraska was the answer to their utmost, I'm sorry, to their earnest prayers. A leader who could unite all the silver forces. The floor broke into pandemonium as bands played, delegates marched, men cried, and the foot-stomping spread like an earthquake through the immense hall. Chicago poet Edgar Lee Masters, who was in the crowd, remembered, they lifted this orator and upon their shoulders and carried him as if he were a god. And they were Edgar Lee Masters' words. In his campaign memoirs, Bryan was quite modest, giving no indication the, the effect his words had on the crowd. He commented on a response to his address by noting that the concluding sentence of my speech was criticized both favorably and unfavorably. Of course, the Jews would be offended, right? That, that Brian made an analogy of Christ. Brian thus became the party's frontrunner. Congressman Richard Bland of Missouri, popularly known as Silver Dick, had been the favorite up to this point. But compared to the flamboyant orator Brian, Bland had the misfortune of living up to his name. On the fifth ballot, his name Bland, not the other one. On the fifth ballot, Brian prevailed. Arthur Sewell, a wealthy Maine shipbuilder, was named as Brian's running mate. The party concluded that the presence of an eastern businessman on the ticket would help allay fears that Brian was somehow anti-business. The Democratic platform, hammered out by Brian and his followers, sent a clear message to Wall Street and the allied Rothschild banking and financial interests in London and the capitals of Europe. The words were defiant and nationalist to the core. And now quoting from that platform, We are unalterably opposed to monometallism, which has locked fast the prosperity of an industrial people in the paralysis of hard times. Gold monometallism is a British policy, and its adoption has brought other nations into financial servitude to London. It is not only un-American, but anti-American, and it can be fastened on the United States only by the stifling of that spirit and love of liberty which proclaimed our political independence in 1776 and won it in the War of the Revolution. We demand the free and unlimited coinage of both silver and gold at the present legal ratio of 15 to 1 without waiting for the aid or consent of any other nation. We demand that the standard silver dollar shall be a full legal tender equally with gold for all debts public and private and we favor such legislation as will prevent 
for the future, the demonetization of any kind of legal tender money by private contract. Of course, the Federal Reserve did the absolutely complete opposite of all that. Piper says that on foreign policy, the platform was equally forthright. The Monroe Doctrine, as originally declared and as interpreted by succeeding presidents, is a permanent part of the foreign, foreign policy of the United States and must at all times be maintained. We will comment on the um, faults and benefits of the Monroe Doctrine or the good and bad points of it at some point in the future, perhaps. Piper says, while today's Democratic Party wallows in its vast federal power to rework society in its own warped image, the Democrats of 1896 took a far different view. We denounce arbitrary interference by federal authorities in local affairs as a violation of the Constitution of the United States and a crime against free institutions. And we especially object to government by injunction as a new and highly dangerous form of oppression by which federal judges, in contempt of the laws of the states and rights of citizens, become at once legislators, judges, and executioners. And our citation is cut off mid-sentence. And although, Piper says, and although the Democratic Party of 1896 was known in contrast to the GOP and its McKinley tariff, as the low-tariff party, the Democrats set forth a measure of protectionism for American workers in their platform that would shock modern-day members of the Democratic mainstream, who favor untrammeled immigration. We hold, declared the 1896 Democrats, that the most efficient way of protecting American labor is to prevent the import of foreign pauper labor to compete with it in the home market. And we will decorate this presentation with some of the cartoons of Victor Gillum in this related to this subject or related to pertinent subjects throughout the presentation itself. Of course, it is Republicans and their big business constituents who had always favored unbridled immigration for the sake of cheap labor and expanding markets. It's odd today that the Democratic Party has taken up the same cause using differing logic. It's probably not odd. It's probably by design, I'm sure. Piper continues. Disgruntled, gold Democrats left the Bryan Convention in Chicago and nominated one of their own, Senator John Palmer of Illinois, as a protest candidate. The so-called Silver Republicans ditched the Grand Old Party and endorsed Bryan. The Populist Party, which had made its national debut in the 1892 presidential election, saw the handwriting on a wall. Bryan, the Democrat, had co-opted their major issue. The populists gave Bryan their nod, but rejected Sewell. Instead, the populists nominated Thomas E. Watson of Georgia for vice president. From this point, the populist party actually became merged with the Democratic Party, and it disappeared. 
Again, Piper continues. In reaction to Bryan's nomination, the plutocratic interests allied as never before. The railroads reduced rates so people could travel to see McKinley, who was running a front porch campaign from his home in Canton, Ohio. Many industrial workers were told by their employers that a shift to silver would shut down the plants and that if Bryan won, they should not bother coming to work the day after the election. As we had said, Jacob Schiff, Jacob Schiff was buying up the railroads, and now we know whose candidate McKinley was. Piper continues, The 1896 presidential election was historic in that it marked the first time that the plutocrat-controlled media in America made a coordinated national effort to smear a populist candidate, a phenomenon common in the United States today. According to Ferdinand Lundberg, who wrote a book, America's Sixty Families, published in New York in 1960. I'm sure those 60 families are probably mostly Jewish. That's just my feeling. The first of these great unified press campaigns to manifest centralized motivation and direction took place in 1896, when virtually every important newspaper, Democratic as well as Republican, plumped for William McKinley and the gold standard. Perhaps that original might say, pimped. Against William Jennings Bryan and Free Silver. Even Wikipedia admits that Bryan was opposed by every major democratic newspaper, which shouldn't really be a surprise to us, I'm certain it would be a surprise to normie Democrats <coughs> or average people out in the street. Continuing with Piper, historian Carol Quigley succinctly summarized the course of the 1896 election. Though the forces of high finance and of big business were in a state of near panic, by a mighty effort involving large-scale spending, they were successful in electing McKinley. The inability of plutocracy to control the Democratic Party, as it had demonstrated it could control the Republican Party, made it advisable for them to adopt a one-party outlook on political affairs although they continued to contribute to some extent to both parties and did not cease their efforts to control both. Piper says in response to that, Election Day saw a narrow victory for McKinley, who won 51.01% of the vote and carried 23 states with a total of 271 electoral votes. Bryan won 46.73% of the vote, with 24 states in his corner, and a total of 176 electoral votes. The Prohibition Party's candidate, Joshua Levering, and the National Democratic candidate, John M. Palmer, the Gold Democrat, each won slightly less than 1% of the vote, so their non-existence would still not have carried the election for Bryan. Shortly after the election, Bryan assembled a memoir of the 1896 campaign and titled it The First Battle, 
Thus he implied that future battles lay ahead. Four years later, in the 1900 presidential election, there was a Brian McKinley rematch. McKinley's percentage of the vote actually increased slightly, while Brian's declined. And a detailed study of the economy in the intervening years from this perspective may prove telling. The Depression ended in 1897. Of course, for the bankers to ensure their grip on the economy of the nation, the economy would have to improve, or they did indeed risk a Bryan victory in 1900. So, of course, the economy improved. Piper continues, Beginning in 1901, Bryan began publishing a populist newspaper called The Commoner. using it as his personal political platform. He continued speaking around the country and keeping his hand in democratic politics. Having twice lost the presidency and control of the Democratic Party, Bryan was unable to capture the party's nomination in 1904. However, Vice President Theodore Roosevelt assumed the White House in 1901 upon the assassination of William McKinley. T.R. emerged as a remarkably popular president, evidenced by the 56% of the vote Roosevelt received against Alton B. Parker, his Democratic challenger, in 1904. McKinley's vice president, Garrett Hobart, had died in 1899, and Roosevelt had been placed on a Republican ticket in 1900. McKinley was assassinated by the supposedly Polish anarchist, Leon Zalgosh, I'll pronounce that, it's weird, it's C-Z-O-L-G-O-S-Z, I think that would be Zalgosh, or maybe Chalgosh, but I'll say Zalgosh. However, Zalgosh was heavily influenced by the Jewish Emma Goldman, and Goldman was even suspected of and arrested for complicity in the McKinley assassination. She was released for a lack of evidence. Hobart, McKinley's vice president, was a, his original vice president, was a very popular New Jersey lawyer who was expected to run in 1900, but he suffered a chronic heart element, which evidently killed him after a deteriorating illness at age 55. The chain of events paved the way for Roosevelt, one of the country's quintessential imperialists, to become president. How appropriate. How ironic. Continuing with Piper. In 1908, Bryan wanted to seek the presidency again, but he was willing to step aside if another candidate would carry his populist message in the campaign. However, no major candidate emerged, and Bryan was nominated a third time, once again falling short. Theodore Roosevelt's hand-picked Republican successor, William Howard Taft, won 51.58% of the vote to Bryan's 43.05%. The Socialist Party candidate, Eugene Debs, won nearly 3% of the vote, and Eugene Chaffin, the Prohibition Party candidate, won nearly 2% of the vote. In 1912, this is Piper still, in 1912 there were other candidates in the wings. 
Brian Starr was fading, but House Speaker James Beauchamp Champ Clark of Missouri, a populist in the Brian mold, was gaining strength with support from Brian, the Brian wing of the party. The other major contender was Governor Woodrow Wilson of New Jersey, the former president of Princeton University. He was a dyed-in-the-wool internationalist with an anglophilic predilection common to the plutocratic academic elite of the day. Champ Clark led on the first ballot at the 1912 Baltimore Convention, and Bryan was initially inclined towards Clark's candidacy. However, the plutocratic interests knew that a Bryan-Clark alliance stood in the way of their complete control of the Democratic Party. As a consequence, they concocted a clever ruse to mislead Bryan and undermine Clark's candidacy. Through their agents in the press, they leaked word that the big money interests were lining up behind Champ Clark. Also, Clark refused to eschew the support of New York's powerful Tammany Hall boss, Charles F. Murphy. Murphy. This prompted Bryan into a vigorous attack on Clark, forcing a stalemate. In the meantime, the big money henchmen began making deals on Wilson's behalf. The convention dragged on through 46 ballots, ending in Woodrow Wilson's nomination. Ironically, by stalling Champ Clark's drive to the nomination, Bryan shared indirect responsibility for eventual U.S. entry into the First World War. And we can only wonder why, after all of his experience, Bryan believed the newspapers at all. Continuing with Piper. After winning the presidency, Woodrow Wilson appointed Bryan Secretary of State. But Bryan was frankly out of place in the new administration, one filled with old school tie sophisticates, more at home on a white star or Cunard liner than a train traveling through America's heartland. Ironically, it was Brian who, once again unwittingly, played a major role in a measure that advanced the power of the plutocratic interests he had long battled, the creation of the Federal Reserve System. Although the story of the creation of the Federal Reserve and much of the subterfuge related thereto is beyond the scope of this article, and we heard a lot of it with um, A.K. Chesterton, in our last segment of this presentation. Suffice it to say that it was Bryan's endorsement of the Federal Reserve Act, approved by Congress in December of 1913, that made passage possible. Although the measure was being steered through by the Wilson administration, it was Bryan's blessing that led many congressional populists to support the measure. They, like Bryan, had been hoodwinked into believing that it would stem the influence of the international bankers over the American economy, when of course it did exactly the opposite. According to William Grider, a historian friendly to the Federal Reserve, with a few cosmetic changes, the President persuaded Bryan to endorse the measure as a triumph over the money trust. <coughs> Although, according to Grider, banks publicly proclaimed their opposition to the legislation. Many bankers were also writing their senators and urging them to vote for it. The late Dr. Martin A. Larson, 
a populist historian critical of the Federal Reserve, pointed out that Edward M. House noted in his own papers, it would appear that Bryan never entirely understood the meaning of the legislation that created the privately owned banking monopoly. Bryan himself ultimately repudiated his role in the creation of the Fed. That is the one thing in my public career, said Bryan, that I regret my work to secure the enactment of the Federal Reserve Law. In our last presentation of this series, we quoted A.K. Chesterton as having said that William Jennings Bryan lived long enough to stand aghast at the horrified thought of what his name, in all innocence, had helped to bring into being. But no such shame cast a shadow on the happiness of Warburg and his friends, who now had exclusive power of note to issue to the reserve banks as well as power to fix the discount rate, which meant, of course, power to determine the amount of money in existence. They had conquered America. They were now ready to conquer the world. Again, continuing with Piper. In dealing with foreign affairs, Bryan also seemed in over his head. Although officially the nation's foreign policies are, matters were developing behind the scenes that were completely beyond his control. As Bryan's politically astute wife later reflected, while Secretary Bryan was bearing the heavy responsibility of the Department of State, there arose the curious condition surrounding Mr. Edward Mandelhouse's unofficial connection with the President and his voyage voyages abroad on affairs of state, which were not communicated to Secretary Bryan. The President was unofficially dealing with foreign governments, and that's written in the memoirs of William Jennings Bryan. Of course it would not be Bryan's fault if Wilson was sabotaging the legitimate operation of his own administration or allowing it to be sabotaged by House. There should be little doubt that House was a Rothschild agent subjected upon the co compliant and morally compromised Wilson by those who put Wilson in power. But we can only conjecture that if Bryan was really aware of what was transpiring, he may have resigned in protest sooner than he had resigned. Piper continues, War was brewing in Europe. Although the U.S. was officially neutral, President Wilson, in accord with long-held sympathies toward Imperial Britain, he had developed as a Princeton undergraduate, was maneuvering to bring America into the war. In fact, according to Anglophile historian Carol Quigley, the entire Wilson administration, with the single exception of Bryan, was committed to U.S. participation in the war on the side of England. Ferdinand Lundberg writes of Bryan's efforts to keep America out of the war. Less than two weeks after the war began, Bryan informed President Wilson that J.P. Morgan and Company had inquired whether there would be any official objection to making a loan to the French government through the Rothschilds. Bryan warned that the 
Brian warned the president that money is the worst of all contrabands, and that if the loan were permitted, the interest of the powerful persons making it would be enlisted on the side of the borrower, making neutrality difficult, if not impossible. Brian's warnings fell on deaf ears. Wilson and his inner circle were committed to U.S. intervention in England's war. The sinking of the RMS Lusitania on May 7, 1915, gave Wilson yet another excuse to move toward intervention. Bryan realized his efforts to prevent American involvement were fruitless. Arthur H. Vandenberg, who was a U.S. Senator from Michigan, would later be a leader in efforts to prevent U.S. involvement in the Second Great War in Europe. He noted Bryan, who had declared that, so long as he was secretary, the country would not engage in war, resigned. Bryan returned to private life, devoting his efforts to writing and lecturing. He never sought public office again. In 1925, Bryan became involved in the last great battle of his life, the famous Monkey Trial long one of the nation's most prominent and fervent Christian fundamentalist foes of the teaching of Darwin's theory of evolution, Bryan brought in as assistant prosecutor in the trial of John Scopes, a Tennessee school teacher, Bryan was brought in as an assistant prosecutor in the trial of John Scopes, a Tennessee school teacher charged with teaching evolution, which was banned in Tennessee schools. Scopes's defense attorney was famed Chicago attorney Clarence Darrow, who had actually campaigned for Bryan in the 1896 election. Yet, when the two former allies met in courtroom combat, most observers concluded that although Scopes was actually convicted and Darrow lost, Darrow far outshone Bryan and left the great commoner appearing narrow-minded and dogmatic. The trial was immortalized in the Broadway play Inherit the Wind, later made into a classic Hollywood motion picture. At his home on July 26, 1925, shortly after the conclusion of the Scopes trial, Brian collapsed and died. The old warrior was exhausted and perhaps disillusioned, but he had given his all in every fight and was remembered by one Nebraskan as the brightest and purest advocate of our cause. And that concludes our article. Perhaps Yahshua Christ our God is indeed a master of irony, because we are told by our scriptures that our kingdom would be handed over to the beast. For reason that we have been the whore for the Jew, the whore joined to the beast which represents Mystery Babylon. So one of the preeminent and would-be defenders of Christian Middle America was duped into becoming an advocate of the method by which that handing over occurred, which we reckon happened when the Federal Reserve Act was passed. From that time, the enemies of Christ have controlled the entire political discourse in America. However, we should not condemn William William Jennings Bryan. Rather, we should only understand the inevitable that Christ alone is sovereign and that his will shall prevail in spite of the deeds and intentions of men. So we have been in our current political, economic, and social quagmire 
for over a hundred years. We are sinking into the abyss, and some of us have only begun to notice the dilemma as the mire reaches to our throats. How long shall it be before enough of us awaken and repent of the evil? Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and the eternal enemy of the Jews. And through him alone shall we prevail. Good night.